Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. All right, welcome back, beautiful humans. We're back for another episode. This is Erin. And it's Denisha. Hope you all had a great week. Um, we decided that we were going to take a brief post-reinforcement pause. We did not put out an episode for, what was it, like two weeks? I think it might have been three at this point. Maybe three weeks, yeah. So mm-hmm. we decided to uh, create a nice little state of deprivation for all of you. Um make you kind of wanting some more a little bit and you are certainly in for a treat tonight um but first did we want to check in or do we just want to like move in Hmm. you know what what? i guess we don't really need to check in but maybe we should still tell the people who are listening what's in store for them tonight why don't you do that then i got you okay so tonight we're doing things a little bit different um we're offering our first panel discussion and I have obviously been really excited talking to Aaron behind the scenes and talking to the folks that you'll hear from tonight um, just to, about doing this in general and yeah but maybe we should talk a little bit about why we wanted to do this as well Aaron like why is this type of show important to you uh, so you know it's it's interesting we always talk about uh Hearing from the voices, um, you know, that we talk about all the time and not just talking about people, but actually hearing from the people that we talk about. Um, can I tell Can I tell a story real fast? Because you were an yeah. example of this. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, committed actions and uh, living those committed actions. So uh, for most behavior analysts who go to like ABAI, we know that the deadline was that today for submissions for proposals was I think today Mm -hmm. but so of course there's like this like you have everybody's scrambling at the end and finding people to be on panels and all this stuff but like a week ago you had you had messaged me and sent me an email and had asked if I wanted to be on a panel and somebody had approached you and asked you to to be a discussant on this panel about I think it was gender and sexual minorities and the state of that in the field of behavior analysis and um you know, you were very transparent with them and said, uh, you know, that's I'm not really a part of that, that group. I don't identify that way. Like you should hear from those people that uh, that identify that way. And so I think um, that is exactly what we're doing tonight is bringing people uh, from who we want to hear from that that others need to hear from, too. So that is um, at least my perspective. Do you have anything yeah. to, to add to that? Yeah, I definitely agree. And and that has been a huge part of why I've, I really wanted this show to happen, especially knowing that this field, most of us work with folks that come from the neurodiverse uh, population. And oftentimes we don't hear from the people that we work with, right? And we don't hear those perspectives. And tonight opens up the opportunity for us to just do that, to just shut up and listen. And so I guess with that stated, 
we're just gonna shut up, shut up and listen and listen um <laughs> well, let's do it All i want right. to go ahead and actually introduce the people that are here with us tonight and if you're joining us obviously i gave you a little bit of what the topic is but we're going to be talking about neurodiversity and we're going to be hearing from folks that are also in the behavior analysis field who um, identify in that way so to get started, let me go ahead and say hello to everyone. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Everyone's waving. Hi, Cody. Hello. I'm going to go ahead and start with you. Hey, Dana. Um, Cody, if you want to go ahead yeah. and tell our listeners a little bit about you, who you are. Awesome. Um, so my name's Cody. I'm 26. I currently live in Tampa, Florida. I just moved back here. Um, I was diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder in about 2013. So my sophomore year of college, um, even though looking back, I've probably been experiencing the symptoms and could have been diagnosed probably around 2000, um, the year 2000. Uh, but overall, um, so I just graduated with my master's degree in behavior analysis from Lindenwood University, studying under Maggie Pavone. She's a great professor. Um, and I got my uh, bachelor's degree in psychology from Marquette University in 2016. So that's pretty much everything about me. <laughs> Let us go to Kiyomi. Hi, I'm Kiyomi. I am currently a... Um, special education emphasis and applied behavior analysis student. I will be graduating in May and finishing up my courses in the summer. Um, I have two children. Uh, I received my diagnosis of ADHD and anxiety in 2010. And after giving birth to my first child, I had postpartum depression and anxiety and I gave birth uh, in December of 2018, and um, the postpartum anxiety just kind of really took over. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it about me. Awesome, and last, but of course not least, we have Dana. Hello, all. I am living in central Illinois, working as a behavior analyst since 2009. I grew up in Michigan, where I was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. I am married with three children, two of which have exceptionalities. Uh, I, too, experienced some very difficult mental health issues following the birth of all three children. And I'm just really excited to be here and chatting with you all tonight. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Um, I think the first um, question that we have for you all tonight is the question that Aaron and I were, we were asking ourselves while we were putting this together is, what does neurodiversity really mean? Um, and Cody actually asked me that same question when I was reaching out to folks. As you know, they said, when you say neurodiversity, like what group or what groups are you looking for? And for me, I felt like it was for folks who identify, but I want us to take a little bit of time tonight. If you all could answer this question, um, what is neurodiversity to you? I'm gonna start with 
especially think because I also question sometimes if I fit into that community, even though there are definitely times when I identify as being neurodiverse because I notice that people aren't having the same difficulties as me um, because of something that's happening on the inside. Um, so it really has helped me also be aware when I do have a place at the table and when I don't, um, because I am pretty aware that my specific disability comes from like traumatic events that like kind of technically created this disability. I wasn't born with it. Um, but I guess I was born predisposed to it because otherwise not everybody gets PTSD. Uh, so ultimately it's a very complex question. Um, but to me, neurodiversity really just, is acknowledging that not everybody's brains work the same. And I think that's also why it's very difficult to actually define what neurodiversity is because technically neurodiversity is just the existence of every individual. I like that. So going off of what Cody correct says, um, I really feel the same way. And I think that the term for me, neurodiversity, comes out of, you know, the standard scientific bell curve. And if you don't fit in within the middle 50%, you're divergent, either, um, you know, I don't know. However, the psychological tests that come to diagnose, um, diagnose us. And I don't think it's really a whole lot different than uh, genetic diversity or racial diversity or sexual diversity or any of the other types of diversity. It's just another difference that we have to take out of, in this situation, out of the medical model and how the social model of neurodiversity change and adapt and grow to not just become aware of neurodiversity and uh, all of the different types, but also really to help the social model learn to accept and appreciate uh, what neurodiversity can bring to the table, you know? I like how you said that, bringing like what you all can bring to the table in terms of uh, whether it's your experiences or, or helping other people kind of understand and maybe even just through experiences and things like that. Yes. I agree. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, cool. So it's, so from my experience, at least when I started hearing about the term neurodiversity, um, uh, you know, I kind of, uh, was getting the feeling that people automatically uh, assumed that that meant autism. Have you all, did you all, have you all ever heard that um, or heard that term neurodiversity used more in, in the autism community versus anything else outside of that? I don't know if it's particularly just the field that we work in, but I've definitely seen it used a lot more in the circles that I interact in. Yeah. So my children carry diagnoses of ADHD and dyslexia, so I'm pretty well versed in those circles as well, and I really feel that neurodiversity carries over at least uh, into those circles in the colloquial terms and the culture um, just as much as it does autism. I agree. I, um, I believe that 
that's the only time I've really thought about neurodiversity was with autism. I have a six-year-old that is current um, that has a um, autism diagnosis, and so when I think of neurodiversity, that I tend to think about autism. Mm-hmm. I think that was the same uh, for me as well. Uh, here and not necessarily that I only thought about neurodiversity being autism, but that I started to notice that I was hearing it kind of like be synonymous with autism um, and that I wondering if there were other folks that were being left out of this conversation. And I don't know if that's just like Cody said, because that's the field, you know, a, a lot of us work with folks who um, have an autism diagnosis and that could be why that seems more prevalent to myself and possibly Aaron. And I think Cody was saying that um, they didn't realize or didn't understand if they fit into uh, this conversation uh, because PTSD might be considered a mental health diagnosis. But I carry mental health diagnoses as well, and I don't hear neurodiversity in the mental health field nearly as much as I do in the uh, ADHD, autism, and dyslexia. And I wonder if, again, that's more... um, from the medical model coming in and saying, well, you're sick versus you're just unique. Right. I can definitely see that being a reason, especially just because even the treatment for, or the support that I get is usually very different than like the support that we offer to people with dyslexia and autism and ADHD. So yeah, I can definitely see how that could kind of disrupt the definition. Sure. And, you know, carrying multiple diagnoses, autism amongst other mental health, I feel how, where on earth do you even tease apart those, where does it become autism versus anxiety versus depression versus, you know, I don't know. Right. It's well, just me. So absolutely. I'm a neurodiverse individual. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, same. Cause even with um, PTSD, which can get kind of contrived and unique just because then people are like, well, you're really depressed today. Do you think you also have depression? I'm like, no, it's just the nature of PTSD. Sometimes you're depressed. Sometimes you're super duper anxious. Sometimes you're dissociated. It could lead to a whole bunch of extra diagnoses. Um, and I've, I've never sought out other diagnoses just because it seems like it would personally take me away from what I, I feel like I need to work on at the most in the moment with myself. So, um, I'm sure there have definitely been times when I've qualified for other mental health diagnoses. Um, But you're right. They do just kind of almost pile on so fast. Um, So, yeah, I can definitely see where you're going with that, Dina. Cool. Well, it seems like some really good information just about the, I mean, just hearing from you all about neurodiversity, just through your, through your kind of eyes and your experiences. Um, I definitely find it very interesting as far as the multiple and the complex, like just the complexity, sheer complexity of, uh, of, of diagnoses and the, the, how essentially when it comes down to it, you know, that's the title of our show is beautiful humans. Like that's, that's what all of you are, regardless of any sort of label or anything that, that is applied to that. And I think, um, it's just kind of meeting in the moment, you know? Um, but as far as like, neurodiversity is there a problem in the field related to neurodiversity like can we can we identify what some of those problems are are we limiting this to like kind of the field of behavior analysis or because i think in general i always have come across in 
the autonomy of the person with the um, diagnosis that we're helping or even just um, that I've come across as an individual um, is that once we see that this person needs help or needs treatment, we kind of start to, and this is obviously is not across the board. There are wonderful people that practice outside and not everybody does this, but I start to see that the individual um, identity of that person kind of starts to become not less important, but less prominent in how we begin to treat people. Um, And that we, even though we, hammer into ourselves that like, oh, every person with autism is different. Every person with this diagnosis is different. It's always going to be different. We are creatures of habit and we start to work within the the comfortable bounds that we feel comfortable in. So um, that's kind of something I've always come across. I think for me, when it comes to um, the field of behavior analysis, I have a difficult time um, operationally defining um, anxiety and depression, ADHD. And so that's something I just tend not to speak much about it when, you know, working or um, doing what I do in uh, behavior analysis, because there's, I do not know how to operationally define, you know, uh, the diagnosis, any of them. Mm. I feel like I've come from a different perspective again and bringing the entire neurodiversity into the term neurodiversity back into the medical model. So do children, do young children with autism at age two need evidence-based interventions to help them follow the developmental trajectory that they've fallen off. Absolutely, yes. So what we do is we bring in evidence-based instruction and an evidence-based technology from the field of behavior analysis, and we provide that absolutely needed language intervention, let's say, all right? Um, And obviously, I'm simplifying this a whole lot. But... Then we see the neurodiversity in the cultural sense, and I'm not so sure people are comfortable with the neurodiversity in that sense. So they say, oh, well, this child is two, and they um, dance around in a certain way, and we might call it flapping of hands. And the other child over here dances, and he's able to keep rhythm. So when the child that's two dances and keeps rhythm, that's typical, and he fits in the 50% bell curve, but this child over here needs remediation. Well, does this child over here need remediation in that one specific behavior? You know, I don't know. And and I think we'll talk about it a little bit later um, in the discussion, but... When we start to address behavior that is not significant and might be serving a function that we don't yet understand, that's where I'm. That's where I find concern. I'm thinking about my experience within the field, and sometimes um, the verbiage that I use. Have you been talking about like deficits and? 
I will use it in a way where I'm talking about like skill deficits. Um, but even thinking about when I wanted you all to come on the show, like I wanted to hear the perspectives of neurodiverse folks who are working within behavior analysis. And the first thing that came to mind for me was and their challenges, right? And and the difficulties that are that are in, I guess in my head inherent if you're working within this field. And so um I guess for me, just even thinking about deficits, challenges, um, how like can I reframe that to where it's just differences? And I guess when I heard that, Dana, I hear a little bit of like we're looking at this other child who's doing something as opposed to another one. And we're calling that like, you know, that's their deficit. But it's just different. Right. Um, it's just different. And, and, you know, I think, I think the hand flapping and the dancing and the spinning and that expression of themselves can become a barrier that might become a hindrance for them learning language. And so, yeah, sure, we might need to teach the child to engage in alternative behavior, but then we need to add on the context in which we expect that behavior to happen. And I think we really need to start adding on context to operational definitions. So the operational definition doesn't just look like when the child moves their hands three times in a row, um, then we call it uh, self-stimulatory behavior. But when the child is not directly involved in a learning situation with a relationship with the caregiver, then we can measure that behavior. Um, so I think adding context will really help us as the field identify when the behavior is a concern socially and educationally versus it's just a different way of expressing oneself. So I went to a, a, a conference this summer in Philly and um one of the presenters, I was kind of in the back, so all I could, I could just hear, but one of the presenters was, uh, they were very short and they, everybody presents with their pronouns and everything, but this presenter specifically said, and I have autism. So if you see me, um, playing with this toy, this is completely normal. It's self-stimulatory behavior. Like they advocated, um, that you're going to see me doing these. They were by far the most engaging, well-spoken speaker, um, that was there. And, um, and it was just like, to me, it's like, that was normalized. Be I don't want to say normalized behavior, but like that behavior was, it, it, it wasn't like I go into a home and I see a kid engaging in self-stimulatory behavior. Like you just defined it, Dana, in mm -hmm. terms of like its topography and its physical form and what it looks like, but it was within a context that was functional and it, sure. And, and, and it held a specific purpose. Um, and I think that, you know, to a certain degree, like you're talking about bell curves and, and that's, I see it the exact same way. And it's like that within the middle, we all kind of do these things that are covert and we know how to um, manage certain things or our self-stimulatory soothing behaviors may be like minuscule, if anything. And, um, but then others may require something to that degree and it's just like it, you know because ours looks more culturally socially acceptable because that's what we as a society has deemed okay um it's like how do we go about changing that i think that that's a big thing for me is how like how, how do we do that so 
you know, I think then you get into the discussion and the colloquial term of masking, right? So masking is fitting your behavior to match the way of the behavior around you. So when you're hanging with your friends and um, when you're hanging with your friends at a baseball game or a football game, you behave one way and you use certain words and use certain mannerisms. But then when you go to grandma's house on Sunday, uh, your behavior is is different. So again, we have context. Um, and if you don't behave the way that you're behaving with grandma all the time when you're alone and there's no social context and you're not in a social environment, then um, that could be cons- assumed or considered your typical behavior. But if you're changing the way you normally act when you're alone outside of the social context, for the social context, we can use that um, word to mean masking. All right? So everybody masks. Masking is not a problem. But when you have, at least for me, um, when you have specific behaviors that happen at high rates um, in a free operant situation outside of a social context, and then you're asked to go and work in a social context for 10, 12, 13-hour days as a behavior analyst, then you feel, what do we call it, burnout? (laughs) To, like, way more of a degree than perhaps, I don't know, I'm not anybody else, but way more of a degree than anybody else. So my day looks like waking up and getting ready and preparing and going out and masking and then crashing when I get home. Because I have no energy left. I have no emotional energy left, no social energy left, physical energy, everything. I'm, I'm done. I, I, I'm out. And so I wonder if I was able to build into my day uh, in a socially acceptable way, which, you know, is the culture thing coming again, uh, to be myself and not mask all the time, every day, seven days a week. Uh, would I have significant mental health issues as well? Yes. Um, That definitely just resonated with me, uh, Dana. And I'm wondering, I mean, I I definitely can relate to the masking part, but relate to it even just hearing the differences in what you just outlined. And I'm wondering if uh, Cody... Uh, or Kiyomi would also want to speak to that masking, but, but even just like telling us what your day looks like. Yeah, definitely. So, um, at night I tend to probably go to sleep late because my anxiety kind of takes over about, you know, what's going to happen in the morning. You know, will we wake up on time? Will I get my daughter to school on time? Um, Will she have a good day? What is something going on? Um, you know, trying to be very preventive of um, tantrums that may occur, um, having all of her clothes out the day before, you know, like what she's going to eat for breakfast. So she kind of knows kind of sticking with that schedule. So I'm thinking about that the night before um, when I wake up. Um, many times I wake up before my girls wake up and I'm 
laying in bed, just thinking of everything that could possibly go wrong um, from, okay, picking up the baby out of the crib, moving the obstacles away from the crib, because what if I fall back and trip on a crib and the baby hits her head? Okay, um, you know, like moving that aside, changing her diaper, making sure she's not too close to the edge. What if she rolls off? What if she hits her head? What if she hits her head on a rocking chair in the nursery? Um, closing the door when I go downstairs to get my daughter's breakfast or make her lunch to make sure that my daughter doesn't like, crawl out of the nursery. But with the door closed, um, making sure that she's kind of entertained so she kind of doesn't recognize that I'm out of the room because if she starts crying, that could trigger my six-year-old, um, you know, with the crying and it's too loud and her covering her ears. And I want to make sure in the morning that she has a good day because then she's going to go to school. And so I know her day at school doesn't necessarily start when she goes on campus, you know, her day starts when she wakes up or even the night before. So I'm trying to think of everything that could possibly start a tantrum or encourage a tantrum. And how can I word this? How can I say this? How can I make sure everything's in place? Um, you know, like what if she goes to school when I pack her, uh, her lunch, uh, to go to school, I make her lunch. I make sure the thermos is not too tight because I know that that could trigger a tantrum. I pack two to three spoons in her lunch pail because I'm like, what if she drops one? And then I'm like, oh no, like if she drops it, like that's a total meltdown. So I'm like, let me pack an extra one. And then an extra one, just in case, let me have napkins. Let me have this, you just, and exactly what she wants. And it, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. So by the time I get my daughter to school, I am mentally exhausted and it's only 8.40 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so then it just goes on to the baby. Like, oh, she's crawling now. Let me pick this up. You know, oh, the six-year-old was playing with this. Oh, she could choke on this. She could possibly choke on this. Oh no, can she unscrew that? Does that get in her mouth? Oh, she could choke. Oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? Is my phone close by just in case she happens to choke so I can hurry and call 911? Is the front door unlocked? It's, I mean, and this is just, every day, all day, my, my brain just doesn't turn off. And I guess I'm trying to make sure that nothing bad happens instead of just kind of being in the moment and living. Mm -hmm. And you make a point that that is all at the very beginning of your day. Like you just took us through the first hour of your day, if that, right? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So then I'm thinking I'm, just tomorrow she has a field trip and she's going to be on a school bus and she's never been on a school bus. Is it going to be too loud? Does she need her, um, her headphones that cancel sound? What is that going to be like? What if they sit her next to someone she doesn't want to sit next to? Like, what if the school she goes to um, for her field trip, what if it's too loud there? What is she going to do? Who's going to look out for her? Who's going to hold her hand? But I don't want her to be like me. And so I try not to, um, I try not to let her see my anxiety because I don't want her to pick up on it as well. I want her mm -hmm. to be brave. So I make sure she has swim lessons or, you know, I had her in horseback riding, things that I'm terrified to do. I make sure that she's able to do it, that my anxiety does not hold her back. Thank you for that. Um, Cody, I don't know if you feel like, if you feel comfortable sharing also, you know, how your day is and, and how masking, if that shows up for you as well. Yeah, um, 
now that I've heard kind of like how other people mask, like it's definitely something that I wasn't necessarily aware that I was doing. Um, but uh, waking up in the morning uh, and getting up in the morning are kind of the biggest thing. It's very difficult for me to kind of just make that next step of like sitting up and then getting out of bed. Um, so I usually wake up and I'll wake up on time, um, which I try to explain to lots of college professors. Uh, I do wake up on time um, and then I lay there. Um, and it's not as bad of a problem now that uh, I've been pretty consistently in treatment for my PTSD for the past like six years. Um, but I would, I laid in bed for a couple of hours every morning. Um, and it didn't matter how early I set my alarm, uh, I would just not be able to get up out of bed. Um, and it was just the overwhelming anxiety and fear that came with, honestly, it wasn't even, oh, I have the whole day ahead of me. It was just like, I have to put my feet on the floor. And that seemed like the worst thing I had to do that day. Um, and so even now it's still kind of a challenge. I have to really just kind of push through and get through that. And then once I kind of get that rolling, it's on to the next thing of like, who do I have to see first? What do I have to do? I, does that family even really like me? I think they hate me. Um, all of these things, like this is the worst thing that could happen today. Uh, and just kind of chugging through. And um, I am not the best at masking for the whole day. So I usually make it through all of my sessions. Um, well, not all of my sessions, each session. And then I have a little mini meltdown in the car onto the next one. And then I pull it together and do the next one. Um, and then at the end of the day, uh, the thing that's definitely suffered the most has been probably my social life in the sense that um, before my diagnosis, I was very active on campus. And even now, um, I really do enjoy rugby as, as a sport. Um, but at the end of the workday and at the end of my day, the idea of having to go and still be socially acceptable to people that I actually enjoy hanging out with is very overwhelming. Um, and I find myself sometimes just not going, even though, um, rugby is a big part of my life. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I really hope I can continue to work on. Um, but also finding the nice balance of not doing a disservice to my very valid feelings. Um, so yeah, so it is mm, a pretty, interesting challenge throughout the day of figuring out what I need to do, what I should do, and when I should kind of stand up for myself and advocate for myself on when I need to take a break. Um, so, yeah. So, Cody, you mentioned, like, at work, mm -hmm. and, like, in between, like, little sessions. I'm wondering, like, from you and from the group, if we could dive a little bit more into, like, how that impacts you all at work. Um, if, like, do you do your employers, I don't know if it's like, no, or like, like ha just how, I don't know, just provide some like maybe insight into that or the struggles, um, maybe things that, that benefit you. Like if you could have things that could help at work, what would that look like? Um, I am definitely somebody that I need to figure out how to incorporate this, especially now that I am going to be taking on a BCBA role soon. Um, how to incorporate it that I personally need breaks and I think I need to figure out a way to let my RBTs or my behavioral techs know that breaks are valid for everybody. Like we, we totally give our clients breaks. Um, and I think we put people in these three, four, I've seen some people do like five hour sessions and my brain would melt out of my ears, um, if I had to do one for that long. Uh, and then, um, 
I think one of the most difficult sessions that I had um, pertaining specifically to my diagnosis is that um, I had an individual trigger me in a pretty specific way and it was like a really bad trigger and I didn't have a way out. Um, And so I just kind of like sat there and counted down the minutes and like did everything I could to just keep it together until I could just finish out the rest of the day. Um, And I, I know it's a personal strength and flaw of mine that I really um, value what I give to clients and I don't ever want to cancel. I don't ever want to like call in sick or like leave a session early. Um, But kind of defining when it is okay to do those things um, for myself and maybe even with like the, the companies that I work with um, so that I can avoid situations that aren't because then it created a um, after that individual and they were like three. So it was nothing that like somebody did on purpose or that was like um, very harmful or violent. Uh, It was just a situation that um, uh, it just happened. Um, But finding a way to advocate for myself in those situations, but still um, I'd say not give too much about myself away. Cause I think, because uh, I had had mentioned it to my supervisor at the time and I was like, Hey, like, I think I need like a little break. I just need to get some stuff together. And she was kind of like trying to understand, but I really didn't have a socially valid re- reason as to why I needed a break from this three-year-old, like without explaining my whole life situation and why this was such a hard event for me, there was no way for me to actually explain why I needed to take a break. Um, and so, yeah, so that was definitely something really challenging for me. Um, and looking back on it now, it's something that I can, I feel a lot in a much better place to actually like learn from. Um, but yeah, so those, that's kind of how it's definitely affected my work and my job. Um, I'm a stay at home mom now, but, um, when I was working, I live in Montana. I live in Missoula, Montana. Um, I'm a woman of color. Um, there aren't uh, many people of color here in Montana. So I always feel the need, uh, because it's Montana, it's a red state, and whatever stereotype that a lot of people who have never come into contact with a woman of color, and the only information they know about a woman of color is what CNN or Fox News or whatever they're, you know, they're watching what they tells them like how I guess we're supposed to behave or the stereotype. So I would find myself trying to go above and beyond because I want to prove like I'm not lazy or no, I don't do this. Like I'm a hard worker. Like I, I will be there. I go above and beyond, above and beyond. And um, Cody, you were talking about advocating for yourself. I'm an amazing advocate when it came to my clients, when it comes to my children, when it comes to my loved ones, but I have no idea how to advocate for myself. There's a lot that I am hearing in that, right? And I'm wondering about just like the norms. And Dana, you got to this um, with some of your response, but what we consider as normal for people in our field too. And, 
you know, one of those norms is working ourselves past our limits, right? Like, even if you're tired or even if you're not feeling this in this moment, like you have to show up for your client or you have to show up because that's your job. Um, and then just like expecting explanations from people, right? Like if you can't make it, if you if you have this issue, I think like as employer or like supervisor, you you expect that someone has to provide you with something, right? Because that's just quote unquote normal human behavior is to, if you have something going on, just share it. Um, but then it, you know, takes away from just like, being empathic, right? That we all might need certain things. And I definitely know that I'll sit in my sessions and I will need a break from my, you know, RPT, from my client, from the parents. And those things happen where I might have to take a moment and go inside my head and then come back. And that's not probably normal behavior for what we know. But what are some of these things that you think we could do as a field to kind of normalize that everyone has these moments where they might need something from other people in the environment, just as we expect our clients to need something from others in the environment as well? I think for a lot of people, they don't understand um, the diagnosis. And so, when we're venting or you know we're explaining to others because they don't experience it, we're not reinforced um, when we're talking to different people and we're telling them what's going on. And for me, if I'm having a panic attack or I feel a attack coming on, there are certain people I wanna call, but then I will call a friend or I would reach out to a friend that has anxiety as well because they understand. And I can't have that conversation with someone that doesn't understand anxiety because like for my family, they're kind of like, take it to the Lord in prayer, the end. And it's beyond that for me. I, there was a point that I was hospitalized. I had a very huge panic attack that I just knew I was dying. I couldn't breathe. My limbs were frozen. And I just remember vomiting and my baby was just standing there and I couldn't even like redirect my vomit. And I'm like, please don't step in it and calling 911. And we've never had an issue with reception, but the time that we needed to call 911, we didn't have reception and it was just terrifying and I was just like I'm going to die this is it this is how I die I'm going to leave my baby without a mother and I had to be hospitalized and I remember them explaining to me like that was a panic attack and I was just like no I, I was dying no no I was dying I wasn't a panic no, I was dying I saw the light like that was nope and they're like it was a panic attack and it was just like wow but how do you explain that to someone and they understand it how do they reinforce like what we're feeling when you can't necessarily touch it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And how do we get, how do we like at work, what are the things that we can do to even prevent those things? Like if, if some of your triggers have to do with like the environment at work, like what can we do to prevent some of that stuff from happening in the first place? Um, but then obviously, yes, like what happens when those things do occur? How do we show up to to support you as well? Um, Cody or Dana, do you have anything that you want to add to things that we could possibly normalize or do 
um, in our workspaces? You know, so I, I am trying usually to think about what would be the best way to accommodate an individual that needs a break, um, but also accommodate, right? So it's not just those of us with labels um, that might need to take a break, for example. So when I was working um, with some young clients and I was supervising eight RBTs or more, I would imagine, um, we really built up a culture within ourselves of, you know, if you need a break for any reason, just say I need a break. And we always had an extra person on staff or on the shift uh, in a clinic type setting. And so for whatever reason, if somebody needed to step out, if they had, if they were triggered, if they were tired, if they needed a drink of water, whatever, for whatever reason, you could tap somebody out. And we went eventually as far as to go, if one of your coworkers um, notices that you are becoming agitated or stressed, very subtly, obviously, um, please respect them when they say you can go take a break and you can go take a break. And I don't think it's so, so much, I, I don't think it's so much of a difference um, we don't need to be singled out. We don't need to be pulled out. We don't need to be labeled. We don't need to be giving our supervisors all these things. We just need to build and build antecedent strategies within our culture that accept everybody. Yes. Do you think it's a, a problem? So I've worked in a lot of, of companies where the harder you work, the more you're reinforced. And, and so do you think just the culture, because Dana, earlier you said 10, 12, 13 hour days of work, you know, I mean, I know what that's I don't work like. there anymore. I don't work there anymore. <laughs> Thank goodness. But I do know for a very large part of, you know, whether it's that or you're expected to take work home for you. And it's, um, and I know there are several companies that, where it's like, that's, um, that's how the company was founded. That's who owns the company. That's who runs it. That's their mentality is, is I am working all the time. My phone is on contact me anytime. There's no break. There's no nothing. And so that becomes the culture of the organization. Um, and then that person who then is like needing to take breaks and things like that, um, you know, that, uh, that becomes an issue that becomes a hindrance, you know, um, you're not, quote unquote, reliable or something like that, um, where I would imagine that if the culture was to promote um, the health and well-being of all of it, all of its employees and, um, you know, kind of take and, and listen to them, this is what I need, uh, that the culture then would not be like you're saying, singling them out, giving you a label, having to say, OK, I've got anxiety, so I'm going to need you know, three solid breaks a day or something like that. Like that, that to me is, is stigmatizing where if you're just saying, okay, like communicate what you need, regardless of who you are, like this mm -hmm. is just the culture of our organization as we take care of ourselves. And that is unique to every single person, you know, and none of that it 
is a, is contingent on promotions or employment or anything like that. You know, does that, I mean, would that be helpful? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. If you're exhausted, if you're exhausted mentally, physically, spiritually, whatever, you can't be productive. So if you can take a 10 minute break or a five minute break and rejuvenate your to finish that session or to finish that uh, paper, then so be it. And I'm one that has a very difficult time working straight eight hours. So I probably put it on myself uh, more than the employer to work those 13-hour weeks, 13-hour days, sorry, 13-hour days, just so I could have those extra breaks yet meet productivity the expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also think too, so not so beyond even the breaks, but even being able to communicate, uh, like the clientele that you work with, um, like Cody, you were saying certain clients are, you know, triggering certain things and you, I remember, um, and I say being forced to work in homes, essentially saying, do this or it's your job, um, in homes that were just, um, you know, I did not feel safe in, let's just say that. Um, and so you talk about masking, like I know what that's like, like masking literally who I am and my identity and, um, and you know, and so, um, it's, it's exhausting, uh, like you were saying. So I think like a lot of that shows up and it's just, instead of people telling us what we need to do and you know it's listening to people to tell us to te- for 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 them to tell us what they need to be yes. the best employee they can be right yes. i think yeah. also following through with that as well so when we as employer uh, employees are saying this is what we need um to follow through if if that role is in place like can follow follow through please mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, it's all about, I I think, values coming back to, you know, we talk about a lot about act and, um, you know, value driven behavior on this podcast. And I think that's, um, that's a lot of what that is, is if you're saying you value your employees, um, to what degree, you know, Uh, so I think it's a lot to do with that for sure. And definitely some perspective taken, which, you know, it's kind of what I was saying earlier, just like, we all have our own needs, right? And even if you are that employer that um, has these outcome goals that you want to meet, like being able to think about these times that you've needed space, a break, anything else, and you know, recognizing that when someone does come to you and say, this is what I'm needing, that it doesn't even have to be, like you don't have to put, um, and in a way we're like, oh, you just need this because you're being or because you have, but just because you need this, like you're literally just communicating that this is what you need for yourself, no matter who you are. Um, and so being able to perspective take and then provide some empathy once you're able to be like, you know, people just have needs and this is what you are um, acting is best for you in this moment or in, in this field or for your day. Um, I want us to, we talked about some of the issues within the field um, with neurodiversity, but I also want us to talk about 
what are the things that we are doing considerably right, quote unquote, um, and that we can do or make sure to do more of in order to, you know, for our neurodiverse individuals that are in our field or the ones that we work with as well. All right. So what is the field behavior analysis doing very well? We have a phenomenal technology for academic instruction. We have a phenomenal technology for language acquisition. And we have this new thing called ACT, probably not so new, but new enough that it's not well known to everybody, including myself. Um, And I really think we need to start using or disseminating ACT into our young children and into our homes and into our families before we have mental health diagnoses, before it becomes a problem as an antecedent strategy. And so learning how to use ACT for myself, um, you know, you were saying, I think you were saying like overwhelming anxiety, right? And your, your thoughts and your stream of consciousness those things were really resonating with me and I struggle because um, I use ACT in a very simplistic way because I am not trained by any stretch of the imagination and I then get myself into more and more and more of a cycle of well maybe I just need to do this better which is not then accepting and being one with those thoughts I don't know going on um but i think if we use act and we have coaches around us that recognize when we're stressed and we accept that feedback from those of us around us we can start to learn more about ourselves and for me my 10 year old i've worked really really hard um, to teach him when he is able to ask for a break, when he's able to ask for more time, when he is able to say, I'm not ready yet, uh, really listening to those those words that come out of his mouth. Um, he has a diagnosis of ADHD. He is most likely on a spectrum, and he was millimeters away from an ODD diagnosis. And we've come so far with him, and now he's starting to come back on me and say, Mom, your voice just changed. How are you feeling? Uh, Mom, Mom, you, you are clenching your teeth. Did you notice that? Um, do you think you, maybe you're listening to this special song that he and I both listen to um, would help you calm down? Would you like to do that with me? And having that coach and being respectful of my 10-year-old who's telling me that I need to take a chill pill um, is just its amazing. So how can we <laughs> disseminate act much more eloquently that I have attempted to do in my own home. Uh, So it acts as a Band-Aid for future mental health issues for our future generations. I just want to say that, I mean, just even picturing your 10-year-old walking you through that, I just thought that was beautiful. (laughs) Um, Right? Yeah. 
I think ACT is a pathway, right? A doorway, not just not just a Band-Aid, but like a pathway to like so much more. And we talked about, um, so we are talking about ACT and I feel like for the listeners, we should probably talk about what ACT is just in case they don't know what it is, but ACT means acceptance and commitment therapy or training. Some people use that to um, vary the T, but ACT is essentially a behavior analytic approach that tries to foster uh, flexible responding. Psychological flexibility. Psychological flexibility um, while in the presence of aversive private events. So um, Dana, you talked a little bit about like private events for you. What ACT also does um, is it tries to get us, our ACT works to have us engage in values-directed behavior, right? So if we create values or we say these things matter to us, we might be able to um, move forward or, you know, work in service of this value, even when aversive things are going on internally for us. Um, so hopefully that gives our listeners a little bit of perspective what ACT is. Aaron, do you have anything you want to add to it? I had an example for Kiyomi because Kiyomi said she wasn't familiar with ACT that much. So earlier on, you had said um, that you don't want to pass your anxiety on to your daughter. I remember you saying that. And so um, that showed up for me as a value for you um, in, in a sense, whether I, I kind of frame that as a value. So in that moment, when you're kind of engaging in all these anxiety driven behaviors, right, which um, are serving the purpose of you essentially avoid you're you're avoiding um, all of these negative feelings and thoughts that are showing up by controlling your environment, controlling everything around you. Um, and that is serving the purpose of negative reinforcement because it's taking away that 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 feeling that whatever is going on. In that moment, you would be sitting with and accepting, all right, this is going to suck. I'm the, These feelings are going to be here. These thoughts are going to be here. But I have a choice in this moment to act in a different way that is going to teach my daughter or not pass along my anxiety to my daughter. And you would have these very simple things that you would do in in a committed action to move towards these values instead of this other way. So, like, that was kind of just a earlier on when you said that, I was like, oh, that would be a really good example. And it kind of just, that moment kind of just presented itself. I was like, that would be perfect because you don't want to pass that along to your daughter, whether you pass it along or not, but model that. I get that for sure. Yeah. And there's some, you know, the act, there are six processes, principles, procedures, however people want to name them, but six processes of act, right? And so, Erin, you're mentioning for Kiyomi, like the exposure part, right? Mm -hmm. We are exposing ourselves to those those thoughts, right? Um, Or the stimuli that might be there. Um, And then another key part of act is just like distancing, distancing ourselves kind of from the thoughts that we're having. Like I'm having the thought that I'm having a thought. And the more that we're able to do that, we become a little bit more uh, objective, I guess, about that thought as opposed to attaching and sticking that thought on us. Um, Yeah. And then we, then we remember that we don't have to just respond in this one specific way. Right. And I think that act gives us that that's the flexibility part that we speak of. Like I can do so many other things. It's possible to do other things in this moment, too. Yes. And something else that that showed up for me in that moment, too, was when Dana was talking about kind of cultural rules 
and rules are really important when we come because you know we talk about one of the uh, points of uh the hex flex as far as act goes is fusion with these rules and then that you know we align our behavior with with those rules and so um you know defining so let's take for instance uh parents in america like that think they shouldn't co-sleep like a kid should sleep in their own bed and the kid should sleep over here and i should sleep in my own bed um but if your kid has severe separation anxiety that is um you know really struggling at night or something like that and you're really aligned with this rule that could have like this negative result where you could then take a different course of action and maybe fade something out i'm saying in a very general sense like um aligning yourself with those rules like you were saying all self-stimulatory behavior is bad right no it can be context specific it can be functional in a sense and so becoming flexible with our thinking in that sense um, can be really really beneficial we have the ability to do that that technology is sitting there right it's just like how do we harness that and use it to to approach some of the things that you all were saying i think all right <laughs> that is act in a nutshell <laughs> for those who said they didn't know. Um, so, then, so then I, you know, so well, um, while Erin was talking, I was beginning to think that, you know, some of the cultural norms um, are within our own head, uh, obviously, because we live in a social culture. So, um, you know, I can feel anxious and I can, it's, it's a sensory, it's a somatic feeling. Um, my heart is flipping out of it, my chest, et cetera, but I can still walk to the store. Um, I can still do these things that I need to do in my values driven, uh, life. Right. Um, but I also need to be able to think about my individuality and what I am and who I am and not what the culture expects me to be. Um, and I think that that's really where I'm learning and growing right now, uh, just because I can say, yes, I'm having a panic attack, but that doesn't stop me from going to the store. Um, <laughs> not always just following the act trend to be normal, mm. to actually accept myself and my uh, differences and then adjust when I might go to the store. So we don't go to the store on Sunday afternoon. We go to the store later at night at 830 because it's quiet, right? Things like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, Dana, I relate to that a lot, for sure. Um, sorry? I think, sorry, I relate to that a lot. Um, honestly, uh, initially, I, I definitely like saw a lot of congruences with me being a black person um, and just me facing a lot of paranoia about even like recently with job interviews, um, I had dreadlocks. I combed them all out. It took me 12 hours to comb them all out. It was... I, it was worth it. I'll, I'm going to get them put back in now that I have a job. Um, <laughs> but like even just that, um, I did have like a very large mental dissonance with I know socially that me having locks 
could be perceived as a problem. And I kind of jumped the gun in assuming that it would be a hiring problem. Um, thinking to my uh, disability, my diagnosis, um, I do sometimes, um, I, it took, sorry, it took me a long time to kind of accept um, my diagnosis and my label, and then also come to understand that it wasn't something that was ever actually going to be cured, and that it was something that I did have to um, accept and work with and understand. I wouldn't call them my limitations. I would call them my differences. Yeah. Um, and just kind of when I would have to do certain things again, like even honestly going to the store was something that resonated with me because particular stores and certain layouts can become very, um, uh, I wouldn't say triggering. It's not, um, something that's that severe, but it, it does induce a lot of anxiety. Um, and so, yeah, I have learned how to map my life and experiences in a way that, is the most comfortable for me. So yeah, what she said resonated with me a lot. Right. So just because we can overcome as individuals, our thoughts and feelings um, and do what society expects of us, should we expect the um, individuals that we work with to always a hundred percent of the time overcome their thoughts and feelings and experiences to fit into society? Or can we help, develop lots and lots of antecedent strategies for um, supporting that individual where that individual is right now. So I think a lot of the times what, what we do is we, all of those things like act is, is a very small part of that. And it's like all of those things up front. And then even thinking like I can be so, so rigid with thinking that I have to conform to society like I can be so fused with those rules that then that becomes something I'm like I don't even have to go to the store I Instacart is a thing now like you can just bring my groceries to me like that's what I would be doing I'm like we're not going to the store today at all you could bring them on like you know and and so it's just eat because of the delivery man right you do it you do what you need to do. And I think that that's like, if anything, some of this technology that we now have does lend itself to, to some of that. Um, but, but it's just, I, I think it's, it's, that becomes like that. I don't have to do everything. Like it's, it's okay. Kind of thing. Like this is me and I'm beautiful. And, um, Absolutely. you know, just because, you know, my, mother likes to go to the store on Sunday afternoons does not mean I have to. She likes to run into her people from church after church and talk to them. That sounds like torture to me, you know? And so I don't, you know, it's, it, we all have preferences. We all have needs. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, you are, I, I love what you just said. I think both all of you, I think that was fantastic. Yeah, definitely. And the rules part is definitely there. And, you know, we get to a point where we're saying, well, if I am this, then I must do that. And and that's kind of how the rules come to play. But like you're saying, Dana, like you're saying, Cody, being flexible, I mean, like, what well, I don't have to, right? And and there can be some variability in that and in, in changing our behaviors around uh, just recognizing that you don't have to even be rigid with some of the rules that maybe you were taught or maybe you just learned indirectly, whatever they may be. Um, right. And bringing it back to how, as a practitioner, can I help the clients, right? Mm-hmm. I might have to help the parent uh, become flexible. I might have to help the older individual learn how to be flexible. I might even have to help um, 
the parent and the individual learn who they are yeah. in their beautiful selves. In their beautiful selves. In their beautiful selves. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Thinking about uh, rules, I know for me, Erin, uh, you were speaking about values and that one of my values is just I need to be a good mother. Um, I want to give to my children, you know, what I didn't have. And so I kind of created these rules of what a good mother is supposed to do. And sometimes I'm just like, <sighs> you know, like for my daughter, there was a time where she had zero language and we were doing everything to just trying to encourage the language and and through ABA services that language was developed and boy was it developed they did a great job because I'm just <laughs> and you stop talking and so sometimes you see a story you know when she's getting in the car and I'm like I'm trying to listen to this podcast you know and I'm tuning her out and I was just like you weren't a good mom at that moment you know there was a time that you wished for this and, and you have it now and, and you need to encourage it. And I'm just like, I just need a break. <laughs> you know, this podcast is the only break I'm going to get while the baby might be sleeping or, you know, uh, yeah. And so I think the rules that I've created in my head are like, this is what a good mom's supposed to do. The house is supposed to be clean. You know, the kids should be clean. They should be matching. They should look decent when they're out in public, you know, make sure they're in bed at a good time. And now I'm just like, F those dishes. <laughs> they could stay there. Like, hey, the laundry wasn't folded. If the baby falls, it's cushion for her falling, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. I was actually just talking with someone about that the other day. As uh, uh, parents that I've worked with in the past where they have nonverbal children and they're so concerned, they're so worried. And then all of a sudden, after lots of, you know, treatment, their kid won't shut up. And they sit there and they feel shameful because they're saying, like, I should be grateful for this, but please just give me a moment. And it's like that that's part of being human, though. You know, like it's uh, it's just talking about needs. It's you're allowed to have those thoughts. You're allowed to have those feelings. Kiyomi, earlier you were saying about, like, some of these things being invisible, not being able to see it people not understanding and I think um I I don't know that that keeps coming back to me as far as like how we can do better to help people understand um I don't know if there's just uh I don't want to say a stigma with people saying oh I have anxiety but I do know with certain um you know whether it's with OCD or or ADHD people use those terms to um identify things that they may struggle with like if they like things organized they'll say that they're OCD or if they um, are having trouble focusing they say that they are ADHD and so I don't know if there's like a where we've kind of desensitized ourselves to these um, terms to where now when people say I've been diagnosed with anxiety or I have anxiety it's it doesn't mean the same thing like what you experience now does not mean the same thing to everybody else they're like oh I experience anxiety all the time and like no you don't feel like you're dying you know <laughs> so I just I, I don't know how I don't have an answer. I don't have a solution. I don't know if you all have any thoughts on that or not. Um, I have seen on, and it's, 
it's far and few in between sometimes, but I can mostly remember it from when I was in college and then in graduate school is asking for, even though we can all recognize that accommodations are, are legally our right to get, but um, sometimes if that's not offered up or written down somewhere, you feel like you're kind of putting uh, someone out there when you ask for them or that you have to like, make that first gesture to do it um and so it would be really nice if we kind of did go back to um or if we brought this into then the workplace um just kind of offering up like hey if you need to talk to this specific person in the company that's never actually going to be your boss or something like that um and just be like hey do you need some accommodations or those kinds of things this is who you can talk to um i think that would be a really great first step in at least opening a positive workplace conversation about it I hope that the folks that are listening and actually have, you know, some positions of power, whether in their company or maybe you don't, maybe you just are another employee. But um, if you recognize that some of these things are not present, I, I hope that folks can take notes and, and possibly bring that to their own environments. And even if it's, you know, through a form of a survey that everybody takes when they come in, like what are the things that you feel like you need to be, you know, throughout your, whatever it is, like, even if it's that form, but I hope that people can at least take that away. So thank you for that. Um, Cody, anybody else have anything? Have any of you heard of I'm determined? No, none of no, you. I okay, have not. No. no. Okay, so I'm determined is a, it's an organization. It's a system that when I was a public school teacher, uh, we had to use, and it was a, a way to teach kids to self advocate for themselves. And so kids would go through and they would write. There was a series of four sections, and it was things that I need, things I prefer. Um, oh gosh, I can't remember all of them, but it was essentially a way for them to advocate for. Here's what I need, and it's almost like in a workplace type setting, I would imagine that that could be beneficial. Like here's your orientation packet that everyone gets. Here's like a not like, you don't have to tell me you have anxiety or some diagnoses. Um, but here's what you tell me if you need a, a schedule that is more far out in advance for predictability, if you need um, more details in terms of, uh, directions that are given or if you like less details and more creativity you know whatever that is like just to be able to know personally uh i, I don't know i have to like look up i need to look up those sections if i'm determined but um, i think that would be nice um my biggest goal is to open an agency here um in montana and um <laughs> i would want to do something like that i would want you know like your office door when you come in there's like a text that you could just put on the door and just like, I need this. Like, I need verbal praise today. Lots of verbal <laughs> praise or, you know, or, you know, I kind of need a break or I need some space. I'll get my work done or I'll get that report in, but I need space today. Like, I think like that would be cool. And, you know, and that text is like the SD for when your boss is walking through the office, like, oh, okay, you know, I'll give that. I'll respect that. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. I like that. So I, I do own an agency and I have this survey that folks take when they come in and I'm even just thinking like how I can change some of the things 
that are on my survey, but I definitely ask about like social interaction because not everyone likes social interactions and, you know, don't want to force that on folks if they don't. I ask about like how people prefer to be spoken to or like even just the way that we like receive the feedback or, um, but to have something that's like how you to, that's more concrete than that. Like how can we allow more space for people to advocate for their needs? Like I'm even looking at this and, and seeing that there's opportunity here to do a little bit more, to go a little bit further. And things change too. I mean, I'm when you're filling out that survey, you know, mm-hmm. six months later, you might need something new or you might not need, you know, which you selected, you know, on the survey. So yeah, I revisit. That goes back to the cultural part is like having the culture that allows people to say what they need or um, allows people to feel even comfortable to speak up for themselves or to advocate for, for themselves. And to also be preventative in that nature to continue to ask people, <laughs> you know, like in general, everybody. You know, it's just to have that be an ongoing thing. And I think, too, um, one thing that I specifically looked at while I was applying to companies and those kinds of things is that um, the discrimination policy that a company puts in their application was a really big deal to me, um, specifically just because there aren't necessarily like federal legislation or state legislation here, specifically in Florida, um, that protect some of the um, other identities that I have. Um, And so having that be very uh, blatant and descriptive about the things that you're not going to discriminate against an employee about instead of just copying and pasting it from something else uh, and being like, yeah, this is a good enough discrimination policy um, really did make a difference in the companies that I chose to apply to, knowing that if if they weren't going to hire me, it wasn't because of X, Y, and Z. It was because of something else that, you know, is a completely valid reason to not hire me compared to something that is I personally feel is not a, a valid and or should be legal thing to discriminate against somebody about. <laughs> so, I'm so sorry you had to comb your dreads out. That's that's so bad. I mean, like, I, I mean, it breaks my heart. Like, just kind of watching the news and and seeing yeah. it. But I've never, you know had to just speak to someone who actually had to do that and it's and it was definitely like it was it was still a choice of mine but also i it'd be great if i didn't have to make that choice um yeah i do miss them they're coming back they looked great that's right uh but (laughs) but yeah so it, it it was still a choice that i made um there was no specific company or anything that somebody specifically said that made me feel that way um but just with the current climate and um me being a new um potential bcba contingent on me passing the exam um I didn't really want that to be something that could be held against me. And so I understand also that that's my own way of thinking, but statistically and with um, uh, hair and quote unquote hygiene, as we can talk about how locks are a completely appropriate form of expression and hairstyle on an, its own podcast. Um, <laughs> but that being sometimes discriminated against as a hygiene uh, policy, um, 
just led me to kind of want to avoid that was that's one of the few things that i personally feel like i had control over when it came to um my identity and my expression um and so that was something that i chose to take a safer road on um but uh i wouldn't say i necessarily regret it but they're definitely coming back so <laughs> you know, i mean i'm i hear a lot in that right and you know of course, if you come from, you know, marginalized communities, there are a lot of rules that you've been taught about yourself, too, and, and that you adhere to. But then we also, you know, have talked on the show about choices anyway, and that even not all the choices that you have in front of you are actually free choices. Um, and so, you know, there's a little bit of that complexity in there because, yes, you made this choice, but up under what conditions did you have to make this choice or either up under what conditions did you learn that you had to make that choice and think about it in the sense of what we give our clients choices sometimes and they're con- uh, <laughs> you know and we're like do you want the red or the blue and they're like no i want the green it's like but these are your choices right um, mm-hmm. and so you know considering it just in, in that way and you all talked about like masking and you somebody could dial that back and say i made the choice to mask but why did you have to make that choice to mask in the first place why do you have to vary your behavior in one situation versus another there's a reason for that right um and so yes i am too in agreement with kiyomi i am sad that you felt like you had to make that choice to cut your hair and i also as a, a fellow black person understand that um you know we the term mask is used we cold switch we have to shift our behaviors uh, the way that we speak the way that we dress and the way you know our hairstyles are in the larger world so that definitely is something that resonates with me as well but to get back to topic because we came all the way off (laughs) um but thank you for bringing that up we we were talking about solutions and i just want to give us either you know as we try to close out the show Either if someone has, you know, more solutions or things that they would like other people in our field to know, um, either about your experience or just about how we can become more inclusive of everybody within the field, um, you can take us out with that. So tell us what you want the listeners to know. Not a heavy question or anything. Was it? Was it a heavy question? I'm sorry. I do this all the time, run on questions, like answer one, two, and three. Um, I think, just to make sure I got this question right. So something that we want, like the field to know in general, but also kind of pertaining to like neurodiversity among like staff more so than like clients, but also still clients. And you know what? This show is yours. Just tell us. We're about to take the show out. So if there's something that you wanted to say tonight on this show that you didn't get an opportunity to, let's whatever that may be, just go ahead and take us out with that. Forget the questions that I just asked. <laughs> um, I think, and this, my experience on the show, which has been great, um, I think it's just kind of reaffirmed my belief that some of the things we do to express ourselves or... Um, yeah so even just things we do to express ourselves things we wear obviously what you wear is usually a form of self-expression but even the things that we do as neurodiverse people that may be atypical to people that don't have the same label as us are still a form of self-expression and i don't know the textbook uh, definition of culture but i do identify with some of the things that i do like they are definitely a part of me and how i express myself and so though they may seem 
abnormal or atypical to other people, they have value with me. Um, and so not necessarily everything I do has to be justified with a reason for somebody else. Um, and I think we, like, I try to carry on that same thought when I enter um, other people's homes is to go in, think that um, beyond what function does this behavior serve, but also what does that behavior mean to somebody? Um, uh, and I think that's something that I try to also take outside of work. Like, the meaning of something's kind of a deeper thought before we just jump to, oh, that's different. Um, is something that I've definitely been trying to incorporate into my life more recently. So, I agree. <laughs> I would. I wish that we can create a community, a society where we can just all be ourselves. We don't have to mask. I mean, just throughout this podcast, I'm like, wow, have I ever taken my mask off? Or is there an individual where I just don't have to wear my mask? Like, hey, this is what you get. And I can just probably think of like maybe two people and one of those are my therapist. So I don't think that's too good. <laughs> but um, yeah, I would love to see a society where people can be themselves and not be judged because it's what society says is not the norm like what is the norm and I think we're a lot more alike than we are different and yes um, if you're if you're code switching um, or if you're masking it's a different population talking about the same thing and I think that I would love to keep moving the field forward and making um, everything accessible for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I love I love just the conversation around accessibility too. Um, and I think, uh, and I still struggle to do it in not a weird or creepy way. Um, in the sense that, like, I have some friends that use wheelchairs, I have some deaf friends, and I, I would love to include people that have differences in my life, specifically differences that I've honestly never had to think about. Um, and I feel like once I have more of those people that have those differences in my life, um, it does just help me think a lot better uh, in how to um, accommodate and help those people. And also like, it makes me very aware of certain problems that I've never had to face. Um, I learned the other day that when snow plows come by, not the other day, this past winter, um, when snow plows come by, they don't actually, they just dump all the snow like right on the crosswalk. And my friend, um, who uses the wheelchair, uh, and commutes to work, he then cannot like actually cross the street because he can go down the sidewalk, but he can't then go from the sidewalk across the street Um, and the city actually has no obligation to shovel that Uh, and so just things like that that I honestly never thought about Um, and I just think like wow I do like to pride myself in being a very open-minded person but I'm not necessarily a very educated person in some areas and so I think by continuing to have conversations like these with people with other labels and other diagnoses and other mobility abilities and those kinds of things, I feel much more ready to like, and 
um, much more educated to have those conversations and help advocate for those people to the best of my abilities. I think it's a lot easier for people um, to understand people when they know an individual that's in a certain population or minority or has a certain diagnosis. It helps them to understand even more. And I know for me, just even lately and just even from the start of this podcast, you know, I'm just really learning, you know, um, why people say what they say and your learning history and your environment. And if you don't have access to people that don't look like you or have different values as as you, it's so easy to just kind of think one way. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm grateful for this podcast because it's just opened my mind to just mind (laughs) so much. Yeah. Um, And as we get ready to get out of here, I just want to say that you both just reminded me of a conversation I was actually having yesterday. But Kiyomi, you're kind of bringing up like a little bit of what um, I was saying to my friend is there are different ways that we can learn, right? And being in proximity to folks that are part of these, um, you know, whatever groups they might be could definitely help us. But then there are other ways that we learn, which could be by listening, um, by reading, by seeking out. And so if that value is there, then we might shift our behavior to without even being around this, you know, individual group of people. And, and we might be able to extend empathy without even meeting folks. And so I think that's the, the, the behavior part of it. And just remembering that, you know, we can, um, we can change and beautiful humans do change (laughs) tagline. Um, so yeah, Erin, do you want to give our listeners a little bit of homework for this week? You know, it's interesting. We made some notes about um, homework. However, I feel like we we have tons of homework, like especially like within the workplace. But one thing that we always like to talk about is, um, and it's the whole reason we had this. Well, one of the reasons is to hear voices. Um, like from the people that 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 are living these experiences um, and to to go to the people and go to the source. And so um, I think one thing we always try to do is connect to people that are doing the work um, of the people on our show, whether um, they're people that are in your community, whether they're people that you're working with um, and have conversations with them for those who are comfortable. you know, kind of don't obviously don't ask somebody to share their experience that that's not comfortable doing so, but, um, but, and just listen, you know, without judgment, I think is, is one of the best things that you can do. So, um, you know, we always say like committed action. So if you can find like one person to talk to, um, that, I mean, that would be great. And then to connect with, um, on like social media channels, there are lots of advocacy organizations out there. Um, we found a bunch, even just ser- searching neurodiversity uh, or neurodiverse on Instagram, brought up a couple um, big kind of, uh, uh, I don't know if you all have any that you want to share or if you all, I don't know if you all share your social media uh, channels or anything like that, but um, but do you all have anybody that you share that you would uh, recommend people following? in terms of like this kind of movement? Um, I know one deaf uh, blogger, vlogger, uh, Ricky, R-I-K-K-I, uh, pointer, P-O-Y-N-T-E-R. 
I'm terrible at spelling. I hope that's how it's spelled. Um, but she um, is really working hard for um, deaf accessibility and captioning, appropriate captioning on um, inter um, internet and those kinds of things. Um, and that kind of has been really great for me to just kind of see the front of the movement and these kinds of people that are actively and kind of the things socially immediately throughout the day. Um, I know uh, Niall DeMarco also does a pretty good job of being on top of um, deaf and hard of hearing, very pop, more pop culture movements. Um, so those are two um, very much at the forefront deaf bloggers and Niall's more of a celebrity, but people that are kind of having the conversations about accessibility. That's awesome. We had a couple that we follow on our podcast channel. Denisha, do you know um, Neuro Neurodivergent Rebel is one of them? Yep. Uh, also Neurodivergent Activist is another one that we follow on our channel. Um, yeah. There are a few other ones um, that we do follow. The one I, I definitely have been like tuning in more into has definitely been Neurodivergent Rebel. Mm -hmm. Um just to, you know, get um, her experiences as well um, in the field. Um, actually, she's not in the field, but she actually has spoken to folks that are in our field. So just hearing those, uh, her viewpoints has been helpful for me as well. I would say if anyone is listening, I don't know if our guest, if you all want to share how people can get in maybe follow you or get in touch with you. You definitely don't have to give out your social media channels or anything like that. But if you feel comfortable, you can do so. Um, we've had, you know, guests in the past that, you know, chose not to, and that's totally fine. But floor is open just in case you want to leave your Better channels. Better we just have them put it in the show notes too, if they want to. So. Oh, the show notes, yes. Or my phone number is though. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am open to friends. I am open to friends. So um, for me, um, I'm, I have uh, Facebook. I have Instagram. Um, Instagram for me, it's um, Kiyomi365. So that's K-I-Y-O-M-I-365. Um, Instagram. And then... Yeah, that's probably the best way to kind of reach me and communicate with me when I'm not studying or listening to podcasts or being a parent. <laughs> All right. Uh, Cody or Dana, if not, we can put them in the show notes. Um, I have to contemplate on if I'm going to jump into this activism role. Because um, right now my social media is pretty private and personal. Uh, so I'm not going to share it at the moment just because I... I don't need that much information out in the world, uh, but I'll, I'll I have to contemplate because this is the second panel I've done, and so it's becoming a trend. So I should look into making a different social media account. <laughs> different. Yeah, so I have a uh, Facebook and Messenger. I'm not so much on Twitter or all the other social media platforms. I am also on LinkedIn. So find me on those. Cool. All right. Well, that concludes this week's show. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Beautiful Humans, the Social Change Cast. And thank you all for committing to being beautiful humans with us. Tune in for the next show. And what a cute little baby. Thank you all oh for listening. Goodness.
It's Denisha and Aaron. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a Pretty Easy Podcast. So Pretty Easy Podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today.